0: the rise and fall of human systems. Light radiates in a pattern of expanding waves.
1: Is there life elsewhere?
0: How does it affect us? These are big questions. Yet the meaning of all this to us is far from ordinary. You're listening to Transistor, a science series from PRX.
2: I've always been fascinated with memory and the single patient that told us the most In fact, told us basically what we know today about how memory works was a patient named H.M. And he was studied in the 1950s by a famous neuroscientist, Brenda Milner.
0: He never complained about coming to do tests. Of course, he didn't remember having done them before, but he enjoyed very much the interaction with us. But he never got to know us. She's
2: going to take us through the very exciting steps that were really like a mystery that she and her colleagues at Montreal Neurological Institute and at Hartford finally solved for us. They answered the basic and fundamental
1: question what part of the brain
2: is important for memory?
1: Before H.M., um, people of course knew that memory uh, was processed in the brain. Uh, but they didn't know that it was localized to a specific spot.
2: I'm so excited to be able to lead you through the mystery of our understanding of human memory. I'm Dr. Wendy Suzuki, and this is Totally Cerebral part of Transistor from PRX, supported by the Sloan Foundation. I remember so clearly the day I met one of my neuroscience heroes, Dr. Brenda Milner. I was a graduate student. It was about 1990, and I'd gone to a meeting in Montreal. And she was presiding over the meeting, and I I finally worked my way up to her, and I introduced myself. And to my surprise, she said, Wendy Suzuki, you're famous. It blew me away. Uh, my advisors had been talking about the studies that I was involved with that are directly related and, and really studies that were following up her historic studies. So that's a memory that I'll always keep. In fact, when I was asked to do this podcast, Brenda Milner was the very first person that I knew I wanted to interview. Brenda was born in 1918, and she's still working today at McGill University, where in 1957 she made history with her description of the now very, very famous amnesic patient, H.M. Brenda told me that she had started out as a mathematician at Cambridge University and then moved on to the study of psychology, and in particular, to the study of memory.
0: And I think what I learned about memory there was to think of it as a constructive process, that it's not blind reproduction by heart of something, that, that our memories get modified all the time, right, with the (laughs) experience something, but then our representation of it, even though we feel very confident sometimes that we're really remembering something accurately, uh, we're often not, but memory can be very misleading. So I was brought up to think of memory as a very inaccurate, very constructive process, rather than as a very faithful reproduction of something you'd learn, you know.
2: This is absolutely true. We know now that memory is very inaccurate, and it is constructed in many different senses. So even back then, Brenda had a very clear and accurate understanding of how memory works. After they graduated, Brenda and her first husband, Peter Milner, were sent to Canada.
0: It during the war in 1944, and we didn't know where we were going in Canada. It was all secret. Uh, but then we landed in Boston, and then we were told we were going to Montreal. And I was very excited because I had never had an opportunity to use my French. I'd never been able to had any money to go out of England before the war. And during the war, nobody was hopping off to France. And so uh, this was to be in a French environment was just fantastic for me.
2: In Montreal, Brenda also had the chance to work with the renowned neurosurgeon Wilder Penfield.
1: Many decades ago, uh, Wilder-Penfield founded the Montreal Neurological Institute at McGill University. That's
2: Suzanne Corkin. She was a student of Brenda's and has run her own lab at MIT for many years. She's written a wonderful book about H.M. called Permanent
1: Present Tense and has also written extensively about Wilder-Penfield. His dream was to bring together physicians, neurologists, and neurosurgeons who would Uh, treat patients with epilepsy, and researchers who studied the underpinnings of epilepsy and its treatments. And he brought these two groups together under a single roof at McGill, and this was actually groundbreaking. He was a giant in the establishment of this field. He began doing unilateral temporal lobectomies for epilepsy. What that means is that when They had epileptic patients who had a specific focus for their seizures, either on the left side or the right side. The surgeon could go in and remove that target area, and the seizures would stop. And this was a very successful procedure. And Penfield had done, you know, maybe close to 100 of these. Brenda Milner, the psychologist working with him at the neuro, had tested these patients preoperatively and postoperatively and isolated a specific Cognitive deficits that varied whether it was the operation was on the left side or the right side. Let me just orient you to
2: what Suzanne just said. We all have two temporal lobes in our brains, one on each side. And the temporal lobe houses two key structures uh, that we're going to be talking about the hippocampus and the amygdala. Uh, Hippocampus actually means seahorse because it's shaped like a seahorse. And the amygdala which means almond, is a small almond-shaped structure right in front of the hippocampus. Both these structures are located deep in the temporal lobe towards the middle. We call it the medial temporal lobe. And you can imagine that these are very difficult brain areas to access. Today, we have powerful new imaging tools that make visualizing the brain much easier but we still do the same operations to alleviate epilepsy, removing part of the temporal lobe where the epileptic seizures start. The big change is the understanding of these structures and what they really do for us. That has changed dramatically
0: because of Brenda's work. And here the operations are, and they're done to this day, the operations are always on one side of the brain only. So if you're taking out a temporal lobe, it's in one side on the assumption that the other side, and more than assumption, <laughs> is functioning normally. And in that case you do have some memory impairments that vary with whether the removal was in the left or dominant hemisphere for language or in the opposite hemisphere. But they are mild and if you cure a person's epilepsy it's a very good exchange for a little bit of difficulty remembering names or something like that.
2: When Wilder Penfield was doing these surgeries we really had no idea what these medial temporal lobe areas are doing. In fact, um, a renowned psychologist at Harvard, Carl Lashley, had explained memory for us. He told us that memory was distributed all over the outer covering of the brain, called the cortex. And he had done experiments that suggested that no single area of the cortex was responsible for memory. But what you needed was lots of interactions between widespread areas, and that's what allowed us to have the memory that we have, because he did experiments and they were quite convincing, showing us that damage in one single area around the cortex would never impair memory. Only if you damage a lot of the cortex would you start to see impairments in memory. And he developed two theories from that. One was the theory of mass action, that is memory requires mass action across large areas of the cortex. And the second was the idea or the law of equipotentiality, that is all areas of the cortex could kind of substitute for the other in terms of memory. Uh, Because that's what his experiment showed. And that's what most psychologists and neurosurgeons believed.
0: Well, I mean, well, it's very interesting this because, of course, Lashley was wrong. Lashley was very brilliant. I mean, he visited McGill once and had tea in the department. I remember, and he was—he's very—it was very brilliant, and he wrote brilliantly. But he was wrong. <laughs> you can, you know, you can be wrong. And so, what Lashley did, of course, was train rats on very complicated mazes, and then remove different bits of the. He had lots of rats, different bits of the cortex, and he—he he found that that the uh, and that the performance of, of on the maze deteriorated after these operations but that it deteriorated in relation to how much of the brain was removed and not exactly where in the rat's brain this had been and so on the basis of that, he postulated this idea of equipotentiality of cortical function, that what mattered was how much you had and not very, not very much, apart from, you know, upper sensory areas or something, not very much mattered exactly where it was in the brain. And I can still remember, sitting probably in the chair I'm sitting in now talking on the phone to somebody, and the person at the other end was another psychologist, said, Brenda, you're such a localizationist. And that was an absolute insult back in the 50s. Part of
2: what makes Brenda such a great scientist is her belief in her own data and her ability to just question the prevailing wisdom, no matter where it comes from. In fact, a famous saying in science is that you don't usually come up with a new finding by saying, aha, I've got it. It's usually, hmm, that's weird. That's exactly
1: what happened to Brenda when two unusual cases came up. Two patients, FC and PB, who were clearly different. When
0: they came in, you know, only a few months apart, the first one was an engineer PB.
1: And what was different about them was that they each had a left temporal lobectomy
0: that included the hippocampus. And after that, this patient, who was very bright and whom I had tested before the surgery, said, what have you people done to my memory? And that was where I got, we saw this uh, situation in which we had a very bright man, an engineer, a functioning person in society. And, but he was not remembering what he'd had for breakfast and if his wife had been to see him they lost the ability to lay
1: down new long-term memories. And Penfield and Milner really didn't have an explanation for this because
0: all of these other cases hadn't become amnesic. And this was very disconcerting. Now, you know, you can see the it's amazing with magnetic resonance imaging, how you can see all the structures and so on. But in those days, you were having to rely very much on your clinical intuitions. And then shortly thereafter, we had another case like that of a 28-year-old glove cutter. And so Dr. Penfield and I reported these two cases at the American Neurological Association meetings in Chicago. And then... Um, Dr. Penfield got a call from a neurosurgeon in Hartford, Connecticut, Dr. William Scoville. William Beecher
1: Scoville in Hartford had done an experimental brain operation on a number of patients who were psychotic. And then there was one patient who was different. He did one patient in whom he did the operation for epilepsy, and that was H.M. And H.M. and one of the psychotic patients Um, came out of the operation with a very grave memory loss. Scoville knew about Penfield's cases, FC and PB, so he called him up. um, You know, the the old boy's neurosurgical network was well-oiled and said, you know, look, I have these two cases that sound very much like FC and PB. Would you like to study
0: them? And he invited me to go down to Hartford and to study this patient, HM, and any other of his patients that interested me. And Dr. Penfield said to me, Would you like to go? And I said, You bet I'd like to go.
1: You know, Scoville's training was in neurosurgery, um, tinkering with people's brains or spinal cord or peripheral nerves. And he made astute clinical observations that, you know, these people's <laughs> memory was a disaster, but he really needed someone uh, trained in psychology. Who understood memory mechanisms and memory concepts?
2: Scoville was in the wild west of neurosurgery. He was experimental. He was trying to see whether he could cure schizophrenia and manic depression by various brain lesions, including frontal lobotomies.
1: So, this was psychosurgery. You know, it, it, it. It began with, with the frontal lobotomies, and Scoville was a psychosurgeon, and he actually did frontal lobotomies on a whole series of psychotic women. And he thought that he wasn't getting the results that he would like to see, so he decided to move
0: back to the temporal lobes, which are right behind the frontal lobes. He was a bit naughty here. He'd been doing this sort of operation with schizo- the schizophrenic patients, and, the, and I got to study the half a dozen of these Uh, psychotic patients that Dr. Scoville had operated on and I was able to show that that they had memory impairment and the degree of memory impairment was related a bit to his description of what had been removed. HM, HM was of course uh, not psychotic at all, he was a very normal personality all his life, Uh, but he had this terrible epilepsy and he was not responding to any medication but Dr. Scoville was uh, thinking that Maybe these operations that they were doing in Montreal for epilepsy would help uh, HM, you know?
2: Before we find out what exactly Brenda discovered about patient HM, I wanna step back and give you a sense of who he was. Patient HM was the most famous neurological patient ever studied. I'll never forget the day in December 2008 when I learned his real name for the first time. This was a secret kept for 55 years in neuroscience. What was H.M.'s real name? And his name was Henry Mollison.
1: Henry was born in um, 1926. And he grew up during the 20s, 30s, and 40s leading a lifestyle like that of most other boys in the Hartford, Connecticut area. But his trajectory diverged from the normal path uh, when he was 10 years old because he began having mal seizures. These are little absol seizures where he might look like he was daydreaming for about 30 seconds. He might fiddle with his shirt or, you know, look off into the distance. And then when the episode ended, he would resume doing whatever he had been doing before the seizure started. His grand mal seizures began on his 15th birthday. And over the ensuing years, his attacks increased in frequency to the point where his activities were really severely restricted. His life was basically on hold. He took very high doses of several anticonvulsant drugs, but to no avail. But in 1953, as a last resort, uh, Scoville suggested to Henry and his parents that he, Scoville, could perform a brain operation that he hoped would control the seizures. Scoville called it actually a frankly experimental operation. And Henry had this operation in August of 1953 when he was 27 years old. And as everyone had hoped, uh, Henry's attacks were much less frequent during the years after the operation. The consequences of the surgery, however, were unexpected and shocking because Henry was immediately rendered incapable of remembering any new events or facts. I
2: think about what Brenda must have been thinking about on that train ride from Montreal to Hartford to study patient H.M. for the first time. On the one hand she had the glove cutter and the engineer in Montreal. Now these patients had removal of the hippocampus and the amygdala on only one side of the brain and they were severely amnesic. On the other hand there were the psychotic woman in Hartford and patient H.M. that were also severely amnesic. They had removal of the hippocampus and the amygdala on both sides. And on top of all of that there was Lashley telling us that memory wasn't in these areas that were removed, it was in the cortex. It was Brenda's job to try and figure out exactly what was going on here.
0: Well, when I first met him, he was about 27, I think, 28, something like that, and... uh, He's unfailingly courteous, I'm sure that Sue Corkin, who spent more time with him now than I have, will uh, will agree to that, anybody that's worked with him. He's extremely, he's very very well brought up and very courteous and considerate. Uh, and and he wants to be of help and this this is you know why he he never complained about coming to do tests you go of course he didn't remember having done them before but but still you know he he might be sitting there doing a crossword puzzle when you come and say come and do some tests it, you know you think maybe sometimes he would say why should I but no he enjoyed very much the interaction with us um but he never got to know us i mean so i uh, I went the first time. I remember I, I met him in the, in the uh, Dr. Scoville's waiting room. Then I went in, and uh, you know, and I told him who I was as Milner, and I was from Montreal. And he said, "Oh, Montreal, Canada." And I went to Toronto once, and something about that he'd milked a cow in Canada, <laughs> and he told me that. And then we chatted a little, and then I said, you uh, just a few minutes later? Do you remember my name?" Uh, And, you know, I'm sorry, I've had trouble. Uh, He didn't remember anything about Canada. But there was this amazing dissociation between that and his ability to work on something that he could keep in mind. This happened the very, very first time I was there. And I always say, And I was very naive, and in spite of having seen PB and FC, I mean, I was learning on the job, so to speak, what what these patients were like. So I said to him, I'm going to give you a number, I want you to remember it, and I'm going to go out and I'll be be back in a few minutes. And, And so I gave him. And uh, the number 584, I said, I want you to remember this. And and, he, and then I went out and I had a, I did, I had a cup of coffee with Dr. Scoville's secretary. It was in the next office. And went back after about 20 minutes. And I said, uh, do you remember the number? And he said, 584. And I was you see, I was naive in those days. And I was really astonished. And I said, oh, <laughs> that's very good. And, and I, I said, uh, how did you do that? Well, he said. 5, 8 and 4, add up to 17, uh, divide by 2, you get 8 and 9, remember 8, he said, then you have 5 and uh, 9, divide by 2, you have 5 and 4, Five, eight, four. very simple, he said. And then again, I said, do you remember my name? Sorry, his trouble was his memory. And of course, a moment later, he didn't know he'd ever had a number to remember.
2: And this is one of the biggest misconceptions of people's understanding of memory. People think that when I have memory problems, I have short-term memory loss. No, this is exactly what H.M. was able to do. His short-term memory, that ability to keep these calculations in mind while he was playing with them in his mind, that is short-term memory according to the classical definition. What he wasn't able to do was to put things in long-term memory. So what you had for breakfast yesterday morning is not short-term memory. That's your long-term memory because that is the kind of memory that's dependent on the medial temporal lobe. Now, what Brenda's job was, was to figure out how all this was working, what was impaired and what was spared, to figure out which tests to use to evaluate his full scope of learning and memory abilities.
0: You can't claim the universal negative. You can't say, I have this patient and this operation was carried out and now he can't remember anything. You can't make a statement like that. Immediately people say, well, Brenda, what have you tried to teach him? That's the challenge. You can't say somebody doesn't remember anything if you haven't tried to teach him anything. So... So I went over to the McGill Psychology Department and, you know, picked up a couple of tests used in their experimental psychology course. I took a maze learning task, not, not a stylus maze, something you do on a desk, and I took a motor learning task, this mirror drawing task, and I took a maze learning task that I was pretty sure he wouldn't be able to learn, but it was good to document that he couldn't in a quantitative way. And I gave him. I was there for three days. And, of course, he never remembered. He, did, well, he didn't know me. He didn't know he'd done the test, bef- not the test before, but he didn't know he'd ever met me before, you know. This is how I used to speak. I'm having a little argument with myself. Should I go this way, and he pointed... Or maybe I should go that way, and he pointed the opposite alley, you know, having an argument with himself at the very beginning of this little maze, which direction he should take. So he never made any progress. But uh, the mirror drawing was quite different because he, of course, is difficult. You know, this was a star, a sort of double-edged star shape drawn on a piece of 8 by 10 paper, and on a board and you're given a stylus and you're told to start at the at one apex there and draw a line keeping within the narrow confines of the star until you come round to the end which sounds terribly easy except that you only see the star and your hand as reflected in a mirror. And if you try that, it's really it's really awful the first time you do it. Your visual cues are so misleading that when you get to the point of a turn, you know you have to turn, of course, you can see you have to turn, but you turn the wrong way, you know, and then you have to correct and it's infuriating. But with practice people learn. And what was so amazing, I mean he is that he didn't remember, of course, having had these previous trials. And when we finished that, uh, I think this is one of the most exciting moments. Of my People ask you what were the exciting moments in your career, and I think this was a big one, was that uh, you know he stood up, he's quite a tall man, and he he just done this perfect uh, mirror drawing. It's quite tricky, you know. We, we were just guided by the mirror and no, not gone outside the borders at all. And he looked, he was very pleased, and he said, Well, he said, when I started that, and he meant that trial, I thought it would be very difficult, but it seems as though I've done quite well.
2: This is what Brenda Milner really allowed us to understand. It was clear that H.M. had a memory impairment. You didn't have to have a degree in neuropsychology to understand that. But what she discovered is that there were certain things that he could learn, and he could learn them normally in the absence of remembering he ever learned them. So this was really kind of cracking the nut of memory, showing that not only that the hippocampus is so important for remembering certain kinds of things, conscious recollections of facts and events, but other brain areas that she didn't study directly, but she led the way to understanding that these other brain areas were important for other forms of learning memory, as we've just heard, motor skill, learning and memory. And so in this way, Brenda really Open the door to our current understanding of how learning and memory works and how learning and memory is organized in the brain.
1: Before H.M., um, people of course knew that memory uh, was processed in the brain, uh, but they didn't know that it was localized to a specific spot. And what Henry showed the world for the first time was that the removal of the hippocampal region in the inner part of the temporal lobe on both sides of the brain causes amnesia. His case established this causal relation between medial temporal lobe damage and amnesia.
2: When Brenda Milner and Scoville published their historic paper in 1957 describing patient HM and the other amnesic patients. It set a new understanding of how memory worked in the
0: brain and not surprisingly there was a lot of skepticism. It took a long time for this to be accepted. And so people did not question my data. Nobody said she's a liar, she's making this up. Nobody said that.
2: I asked Brenda whether this reception to her work was difficult.
0: No, it wasn't at all that difficult. But uh, science thrives on skepticism, right, and questioning. No, I uh, no, <laughs> I don't think that ever troubled me.
2: I loved talking to Brenda Milner. She has always been such a wonderful example of a clear-thinking, curious scientific mind she has this gift to be able to cut through the noise and see the pattern in the data. This ability allowed her to pull from this chaos of patients with memory impairments and other patients with psychiatric problems an understanding of how memory works. Now it's rare in science that you can point to a single paper as the start of a discipline, but think about it. This one paper Brenda Milner's paper, published in 1957, started the entire field of the neurobiology of learning and memory. Next time, more on Patient HM. Suzanne Corkin worked with HM for 47 years. She's going to tell us what life was really like for him, living with such profound amnesia. And
1: there's going to be some surprises. He uh, had a great sense of humor and would often just crack jokes, um, almost like a stand-up comedian. So, w- one day an undergraduate was had done a whole series of experiments with crossword puzzles with Henry. It had come to the end of this series of experiments and, and Henry said, Well, you live and learn. I'm living and you're learning.
2: Listening to Totally Cerebral from PRX, produced by Julie Burstein, with editing and sound design by Derek John. Our executive producer is John Barth, and we've had help from Genevieve Sponsler and Lily Bowie. I'm Dr. Wendy Suzuki. This episode was recorded by Robert Ald in the studios of the Radio Foundation in New York. Transistor is supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science, technology, and economic performance. More information on Sloan can be found at www.sloan.org.